What is up? Welcome back. P, can you please introduce our guest for today? Absolutely. Jason Brett is a policy wonk, but he is one of the best of us. He has been fighting the good fight and doing everything that he can in D.C. and other places to educate politicians and make them understand how important Bitcoin is for the future of the United States and the future of the world. He was a speaker at Bitcoin 2022. He is the director at the Bitcoin Policy Institute, and he is an all-around stand-up guy. Jason, welcome to the show. Oh, You're no. muted. You're muted. No, press M. <laughs> Just literally press These M. are what we call technical difficulties, my friends. Jason, you may have to go into your settings, click the little little thing, and change your audio, your audio input. Guys, this is what happens in a live show. You're seeing how the sausage is made. The gory, Bitcoin-filled sausage. It's meaty, it's healthy, it supports the, the growth of connective tissue. That's what happens. <laughs> well. Oh no, we lost Jason. We'll be back in a second. We're going to figure out what's going on, get it all resolved. In the meantime. P, what are your... All right. I want to share... So, uh, a quiz we had internally at Bitcoin Magazine because you have to take a quiz every day to have this job. If you if you didn't know, this is actually a very competitive and difficult job to maintain. And yesterday's quiz was who are your top three coin politicians on the pro Bitcoin side and the top three evil anti Bitcoin side. So who is your top three? Oh no, you got to answer that question first. I I'll I'll give you my answer. You're not gonna like my answer, but I'll I'll give you my answer. And number one for the pro Bitcoin team, Cynthia Lummis. You guys are literally gonna laugh at me when I say it, but I'm gonna say it. <clears throat> I was the one who voted for AOC at number two. Oh god. Pro Bitcoin. I did. I did. The fuck is wrong with you? Just hear me out on this. And then rounding out the top three, I truly didn't care and I put Gillibrand. And then for my bottom three, I had Elizabeth Warren as number one. Truly the worst, despicable, terrible, absolute moron. Number two, Donald, orange man, grifter of all grifter, Trump, as terrible for Bitcoin. And then number three was Ted Cruz. And I'll explain my rationale for all of these things. I think for Elizabeth Warren and Lummis, no explanation needed. Why did I put AOC in the pro? She's actually come out against a lot of... Ah, uh, Jason, you're back. Hello. Oh, thank God you can rescue us from... Q's tortured explanation for his terrible choices. Oh no, we still can't hear you. <laughs> All Disaster right, so Jason now gets to hear these things. Oh so. my gosh. All right. What are we going to do here? Why don't we... Chris, is he muted? Like, does it come up as muted or does it come up... Hmm. All right, all right. Here's what we're going to try. Chris. Magical producer. Is there anything else we, you think we can try right now on the call? Any settings we can change? What, what I might suggest, and again, sorry to our wonderful audience, you have to experience this 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 process. We're improving things every day. Chris, maybe jump over and and see if we can figure it out in a different uh, chat, and then we'll be back hopefully with Jason Brett very shortly. In the meantime, Q. Okay, let's get back so, to your fucking awful answers. So 
all right, I've I've been getting attacked for my call on AOC being good for Bitcoin, and here are here are the logical reasons why. A, she has not come out and said any of the ESG bullshit FUD. She has actually gone out of her way to avoid these types of comments, and has on repeated occasions when pressed said she has not yet done enough due diligence on the matter to comment in that vein. That is not what any fucking politician does. That is actually such a thoughtful take. She specifically actually says that she does not own any because it is too much of a conflict of interest, almost as though she is pro getting all of these insider trading laws into effect, also a net positive in this space as a whole. It, she has expressed a very deep understanding and commitment to learning more about this space. What I worry about and where she can literally get flipped to the other list is if she gets a lot of Web3 donations, if she all of a sudden starts getting looped in with the next NFT. She is far more a celebrity than she is a politician. I agree with that take. I just think there is this opportunity where in the same way that a lot of lefties just listen to Elizabeth Warren and whatever she says, it goes, there are a lot of people who also listen to AOC that blindly. And if AOC starts to come out and really understand that Bitcoin can help bank the unbanked, Bitcoin can help get rid of all of these bankers who feel the need like they deserve one to three to 5% of your money just because you decided to spend your money. To be quite honest, ignore your hatred for her. That actually is a viable path for the Democrats and left-leaning people to start to really enjoy and appreciate what Bitcoin can and will do. So ignore your personal feelings about her and understand of any politician in this space, she's actually put forward the right steps to learning about it. And I leave it in her hands to whether or not she actually ends up on the good list or the bad. Now, why do I think, what's his face? Ted Cruz and Donald Trump are the grifters of all grifters. I mean, first off, Donald Trump has literally come out and said he doesn't believe in Bitcoin as a man who claims to be a billionaire. And I emphasize he claims to be a billionaire. You're, you're muted, P, so I'm going to keep hold on. on hold on, hold on, wait, wait, here's the thing. It's not about what people say, it's about what they do. So I am no fan of Trump, but the thing that I care about is whether the actual legislation that people put into effect has a positive or negative effect overall on Bitcoin. On that note. Hello? Yes! Hey! Incredible. <laughs> uh, we got We got it, guys. Thank you for sticking Woo! with us. Jason, you look amazing as always. Thank you. What's going on with this suit? Who are you wearing? How's life? It's a it's a it's a beautiful Armani, and nice. it's um, you know like lobbyist. You know, like think like you know. I don't have the alligator shoes though. I have Bitcoin sneakers, so I'm not that bad of a lobbyist. And uh, yeah, no, I'm ready to. I'm just. It's a beautiful day, and I'm glad that I, I love hearing you guys talk about politics. But I'm glad to be, you know, kind <laughs> of straight. With you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's dive into it. I know you've you have some. The, the topic for today is going to be a general one. It's a you know casual conversation, but you always have your your you get your finger on the on the, on the pulse of a generation of politicians who are not a generation but are a class of people. Don't worry about it. Don't overthink the analogy or the metaphor. I want to hear your thoughts on what's going on in in D.C. right now, and then also I know you have a bunch of clips of politicians saying, "Let's just." got fucking stupid stuff about Bitcoin, and then we're going to be able to dissect it and go through it together. Where do you want to start here? 
Well, I'd love to just give you the overview of what's happening in DC. You know, I thought too today is this is almost like a one-on-one, how does politics work and what not to do in like a hearing if you're ever in Congress and like kind of how things are, are, are how the sausage is made, so to speak. And then, yes, there will be some stuff about Bitcoin too, but I thought it'd be entertaining to just understand a little bit of, unfortunately, how things like go off the rails and our taxpayer dollars are just not at work. It's actually good because it's sort of comedy. And I think, you know, art and comedy have a, a nice thing to do for society. But this is just like train wreck central that we're going to listen to. Before we do that, you know, speaking of train wrecks, they've been trying very hard to get a bill out on stable coins. And the truth is, it takes a long time to get any legislation done in Congress, unless there's like something seriously wrong. And with the Terra Luna stablecoin, the algorithmic stablecoin that we all saw collapse, there's a lot of pressure to regulate this market. But despite some negotiations from Treasury, from Maxine Waters, who's the Democrat, the chairwoman of the House Financial Services Committee, and um, Patrick McHenry, who is the Republican on the, from North Carolina, who's the ranking member. So there's the two sort of leaders, right? We're negotiating with people in Treasury. And it turns out that they couldn't reach an agreement about stablecoins. There's a lot of sticking points. The bill has whether banks can do it or whether only non-banks can issue these types of things. So without kind of going into the whole like tether FUD concept, the, you know, the, the pressure points right now for DC are there was this massive collapse of in, in, in our cryptocurrency ecosystem with Terra. We're still seeing the fallout with Celsius, Voyager, everything. And even though there's that kind of an element of maybe we should be protecting consumers and maybe you might, you know, I think at this point, there probably does need to be some minimum consumer protection for, for some of these instruments out there besides Bitcoin, you know, they weren't able to get anything done. And now it's August. So, you know, August means everybody's off, by the way. This is like a, you are now in summer recess time. Really, the Congress doesn't come back with any meaningful kind of work until maybe like Labor Day. But there will be work happening on the Hill. The staffers will still be thinking about things. But, you know, everybody's at home now. They're all in their district and, you know, focused on things at home in August because, Let's face it, Washington, D.C. is a swamp in the summer. Who wants to be in a swamp in the summer? So let me pause there. And yeah, and then maybe, P, I, I'm excited to walk you through my, my, my list of different moments that I would call like a comedy of errors in Washington, D.C. But like, can we also point out the fact that while these may be comical and a comedy of errors, like these are our lives that these politicians just get to play with and like act as though, oh, you know, if we don't solve this issue today, let's just go on vacation in August. I just want to point that out. You had to bring me down, didn't you, Q? Had Sorry. Sorry. It's serious no. business. No, I can't. I, mean, it's, I want it's, accountability it's, out of these assholes in D.C. <laughs> Look, it's all, it's, it's, I mean, it's, 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 it's hard being in Congress. I mean, half the time you have to be spend raising money. I'm not asking, I'm not saying to be sympathetic, please, listeners, don't be like, um, there's no violin out here. But, you know, <sighs> deals, all those things where people are corruptible and things change along the way. And I think actually the lesson of this you'll see is there can be petty disputes between different people that can really affect us. That's really the issue, right? That there might just be a disagreement between two people 
that has a massive effect on millions of people because we're talking about how we're going to deal with the economy. And that's not what the world is that we want anymore. And that's what the world of Bitcoin is trying to move us to. So, yeah. Love it. Thank you. We okay. appreciate your work. I don't mean to be a dick about it, Jason. That's okay. You're, you're one of the only good people in DC doing the right stuff. We just want to simply point out that literally everyone else in DC is a POS. No, I mean, not literally. No, I have a lot of friends in DC. Not you guys. Don't hate me. Let me back into the city. So when you say we, Jason, who, who do you mean? Who, who, is, who are the people that are fighting for Bitcoin on the side of good? So right now I'm working as and helping the Coin Policy Institute. I'm the director of policy on their website, btcpolicy.org. And I'm working with them on where I feel like for many years, there really wasn't a voice for Bitcoin in, in the United States. There was the Bitcoin sort of foundation that kind of fell apart. I mean, that was early days of Bitcoin. I mean, talking back in really the, the history time vault of like Charlie Schrem when he was implicated with Silk Road. And of course, he was involved with, you know, the Bitcoin foundation at the time, and it lost a lot of its power. And really resulting from Silk Road and a lot of the approach that Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, now Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, took on that case was this really this pressure to really not talk about Bitcoin. And in, I mean, it's even so much as today. Like people, there was, there was a conference last year put out by Jack Dorsey, this, and, the, and the idea of it was called the B word. Like they didn't even say Bitcoin. And you have really strong associations, like trade associations that represent the whole industry not just Bitcoin, but they started at Bitcoin, like Coin Center, Chamber of Digital Commerce, Blockchain Association, right? So, I mean, Crypto Council for Innovation, Crypto, Blockchain, Coin Center, Digital Commerce, like you're not hearing any, the word Bitcoin, right? So I was really proud when, when David Zell told me he was starting the Bitcoin Policy in Institute, and, you know, to work and support this, this initiative because I think very often that there's an expression in DC, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And if there's really no one representing Bitcoin in DC, there could be laws that could very well help Bitcoin that might be there to help the lobbying interests from the other coins that have much more people behind them and much more money behind them. But sometimes maybe it's not in the best interest, right? And so I just think it's important to have some sort of a, of a voice. So the Bitcoin Policy Institute is great. I do want to reach across the aisle, as a good politician would say, one day when I run for Congress, I can say I'll reach across the aisle. But I mean, to like the Blockchain Association, Coin Center, Chamber of Digital Commerce, all these groups, because we want to work with them, right? We want to work with all the people in DC. And we just want to make sure that the largest asset in the space, you know, has the right representation, but also to have a self-interested party there. I know a lot of people in the space don't believe in politics at all and don't think that's needed. But my, my story is an interesting one. You know, I, this is, I've been on your show before, but I mean, I came from the FDIC. So I was a regulator during the financial crisis. And, you know, I dealt in capital markets with the Lehman Brothers failure, with AIG. I saw all of the failures happen. And I've been thinking very often after that about how the Federal Reserve and others were just, you know, acting in a way that was inappropriate. And it wasn't until this new generation and Bitcoin came about that I heard this whole group of these people who were talking about this on a regular basis. And that's really important. And I think that the group of people that are really care about what the Fed is, I mean, you hear long conversations about the Federal Reserve, you just didn't hear that before. They deserve a voice, they deserve a voice in DC. And that's what I'm hoping 
you know, can be generated here where it's not like Bitcoin end or, okay, fine, we'll talk about Bitcoin too. It's no, this is about Bitcoin. What do we think the best environment is to make sure that we make this country one of the best places, if not the best place on earth to own Bitcoin, to have your personal property rights protected, have your privacy protected, and, you know, no one can, should be able to interfere with that. One of the things I did recently and I'm working on with a, a politician in Texas is sort of a, this concept of like a Bitcoin bill of rights or, you know, what would be in a resolution, let's say in the state of Texas about, you know, what rights Bitcoin miners, people that want to transact in Bitcoin have, and how can we maybe start with like a resolution, but then kind of grow it from there to be, you know, enshrined in law. One day, I think maybe even in a constitutional amendment, it's going to be necessary for us to have to, you know, protect the rights of Bitcoiners. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. I just want to let you know that tickets for Bitcoin Amsterdam are on sale now. The largest Bitcoin conference in Europe will take place from October 12th to 14th. More details can be found at b.tc forward slash conference forward slash Amsterdam. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your Bitcoin Amsterdam tickets today. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. What do you think of this? The is it legislation proposal in New York asking for people to come forward if they think they've been scammed in, in, in the crypto space? How dare you laugh at that, sir? Let me tell you, this it's actually a space. really serious thing. Let me tell you. So the CFTC put out a warning in March, okay, of this last year. And the warning was about people who are getting scammed by crypto, but in dating scenarios and relationships. So, you know, for people who maybe get an occasional text or whatever that says like how your trade is going or, you know, and this has been on TV too, but what's become a problem and it's actually... The Federal Trade Commission did a study from January 1st of 2021 to March of 2022. So over a 15-month period, they figured one out of every $4 that people are coming forward and saying they've been scammed out of is from crypto. That's the highest payment of anything else. So there's very much the, the idea of a crypto scam is like a big deal now in Congress. They just had a hearing about it last week. It was literally called, I think, crypto scams. And so... The Federal Bureau of Investigation put out a warning that there are a lot of these fake apps on either Google or Apple, you know, that about trading. And then you go in to put your money and then literally there's, you know, you're not trading anything. So this is a serious thing. And this is something for folks to keep in mind. Like, I know we always say don't trade on exchanges, but if you are going to use a Coinbase or anything, you know, you're not going to use your ledger treasure. Really make sure you like do the right research to like understand what you're doing. But there's a lot of pressure. But the biggest one, the biggest scam has been people who get into relationships and then they're taught how to trade crypto. I know you guys are laughing, but that's okay. Taught how to trade crypto and then they lose a lot of money. And there's a lot of like heartbreaking stories out there. And like, that's the big thing right now. Like, you know, remember like Nigeria, like the whole thing of like, there's a prince from Nigeria that wants your money, which by the way, if you talk to people like in the FBI and others, that's still a thing. People still send money when they get an email from a prince in Nigeria that desperately needs money. People will do a lot of things for love. And now that's really that's really the one of the biggest issues broadly. I mean, scams are are rampant and it's and it's increased 
by an amount that now even Elizabeth Warren last week, Senator Warren has announced she's introducing a bill into Congress, a cryptocurrency bill that's going to help fight these kinds of scams. But I think the romantic angle, again, if you Google it under CFTC, they put a warning out about, you know, people contacting you, getting in relationships and then getting you to start trading crypto and then you lose all your money. So the thing that I don't understand though is why he's trying the, to find out if his fiance is real or not right now in real yeah, time. exactly uh, what are the signs <laughs> sir how, how would how would a, a friend of mine no no i was saying this before you jumped on i feel like this is this is nothing new as you said people get scammed all the time in multiple ways and i think by focusing energy or more energy than is than is reasonable on the idea that cryptocurrencies are all scams now i would say that cryptocurrencies are scams. Bitcoin stands apart from that. But unfortunately, in the eyes, as I understand it, of regulators and politicians, they just get all lumped together. So I feel like this is something that like, yes, it is a problem in the same way that, you know, people getting in car accidents every day is a problem. What is it like thousands of people die in car accidents every day? And like, that's just like, yeah, it's just sort of a fact of life. And you're responsible for driving effectively and safely. I just feel like it's a it's propagating fear in order to drum up support for restricting ultimately Bitcoin because people are afraid of it. What do you think? Am I, am I reaching too far? Well, I mean, you know, I don't want to say that the people who have been like harmed in these scams are being politicized and. There might be people on this call that are just like, you know, these folks are like idiots. But the truth is that, like, there is going to be I, I what I have long said is as Bitcoin grows, I, I hope people didn't think this was all going to be just, you know, a beautiful landscape that we all lived in and Bitcoin would increase and no one would have a problem with it. I think the, the function of you're saying is that we've seen the amount of people who are using, in fact, the Pew Research Center last year put in that 16% of all Americans have in some way used, touched, dealt with cryptocurrency. So that's a large amount of people, right? And that's growing. So of course, you're going to have scams that are naturally going to increase, just like you're naturally going to have people who are going to use a store of value or a medium of exchange for bad things, as well as good things. That's why there's been so much hype for years about how a terrorist might use a little bit of Bitcoin or how there might be money laundering with Bitcoin. This is this oversensitivity to the, the, the attack vector has been on the Bitcoin itself. And, and that's incorrect. The technology should be resting on its own. And what we need to do is adapt to new social problems that arise as well as new opportunities that arise from, you know, Bitcoin being in existence. For instance, ransomware. It's a perfect example. <clears throat> That's why I explain to people in Congress and senators all, all the time is, first of all, would you rather have somebody like, you know, rob you in person or would you rather than be like 2000 miles away? Well, obviously, you wouldn't want any of that to happen. But if you were going to have somebody who was, you know, attacking your computer systems and then they've figured out this way of they're going to ask for Bitcoin, first of all, we should be happy that they're asking for Bitcoin because everybody knows, you know, transactions are going to be broadcasted. You have a chance of retrieving it. But it's just part of the society we live in, just as if it's a wire transfer or people who rob banks. You know, they always said Willie Sutton, that's he went. That's why do you rob banks. That's where the money is. You know, why are you asking for Bitcoin and ransomware? Because you know that that's the way that something could be transferred. And if it's transferred out of country, then, you know, you can work with the FBI and others to try to get it back. But it's just a social problem that exists. And there will be other ones that will exist, just like there'll be opportunities for people to 
hodl Bitcoin and make money and be self-sovereign. So you're going to have problems and you're going to have, you know, the good and the bad. We have to take both of it with the increase of this. We can't put the genie back in the bottle. Okay. Let's dive into it. I guess there's, there's two things I want to ask. Like, what is the, what is the current state of Bitcoin in, in the capital? Like what, what, what are the, the, the most significant issues that you are seeing right now? What are the, the battles that are being fought? And then let's go over to the, some of the clips that you brought in. Sure. So right now it's about the energy use of Bitcoin. Senator Elizabeth Warren, along with a couple of other senators, sent over to the EPA and the Department of Energy a letter that said that the senator had concluded her investigation. Earlier this year, she had sent out letters. First of all, I didn't know senators conducted investigations on their own. We're still trying to figure that one out. Anyway, yeah, she sent out letters. Mean? Yeah, she sent out letters to seven Bitcoin mining companies, the largest Bitcoin miners in the US. They all had to supply information to be responsive to it. Now, the Bitcoin Mining Council every quarter also collects the same kind of information, right? How much energy, all the other aspects of, of the operations. One thing that's nice about the Bitcoin, excuse me, the Bitcoin Mining Council is they didn't put it on the world to display, but Elizabeth Warren thought it would be appropriate to send a letter over to the EPA and DOE that shares all the business information of these seven miners, shows what city and state they're in, and just one figure. How much energy is that particular Bitcoin mining operation putting out? And so when you look at it, it adds up and they found that this correlates to the city of Houston. Doesn't really go into renewables, doesn't go into anything else about where Bitcoin and the energy debate is actually something that is very nuanced and needs to be understood a lot more by politicians. But what she is asking for, so there's two things. The, the, the reason she sent that letter over is that recently the Supreme Court just severely limited the ability of the EPA to regulate what some of these oil and gas and other, you know, nuclear powered facilities, fossil fuel plants can do when it comes to ESG. So the, the conservative Supreme Court already kind of limited what the EPA can do. So this letter is a bit of a reaction to that saying, hey, because, you know, her mantra is we have to stop Bitcoin now so we don't just, you know, burn up the planet. And what she said was to them is she wants them to start doing disclosures. So I don't know what that's going to look like, but you could very well see the EPA put out a proposal that says anyone who's mining, maybe not just a home hobby miner, but over like 10 megawatts or whatever it might be, um, has to report publicly, you know, how much energy they're using. So that's sort of the, the disclosure regime is what they're focused on relating to like Clean Air Act and noise pollution, things like that. I think there was that person that Jamison Lop had on their Twitter where she was testifying, you know, she used to hear the falls, the Niagara Falls outside her home. And then she says, now all I hear is Bitcoin. <laughs> so, I mean, Jesus. there's these, you know. Like, so <laughs> but it's. No more falls, just she hears Bitcoin all day. So. Wait, wait, so, so, so sorry. The, the thing that is, being that is being proposed is that if you are mining Bitcoin at all, you have to register and disclose how much energy you're using? Yeah. Yeah, that's what they're asking the EPA and Department of Energy to do. The EPA and the DOE haven't yet said they're going to do anything, but I'm saying that is the ask from Senator Warren and a few other senators based on the fact that there's so much energy being used because she's very she's been focused on it, right? I mean, she announced in a hearing earlier, and there's 
when you have a U.S. senator that says stuff like we have to stop Bitcoin now, people start to listen to that. Now, the good news is there's 100 senators and the good news is the EPA has just been limited by the Supreme Court. So you're going to find them very, very reluctant to say anything because the last thing they want to do is start asking for disclosures from Bitcoin miners and then see that struck down in court. Right. So there's oh, this yeah, is of course. a long way coming. But I would say that, right, you know, besides the crypto scams that we covered, this is the big topic. And that was a hearing just this last week. You know, the energy FUD continues to be electrifying. So Man, it is. It is. It never stops being infuriating to me. The frame of that argument, like I, I will. I, it is a mistake, obviously, to engage and to try to argue with people around like, well, do you use a clothes dryer? Do you use a washing machine? Do you have, do you put up Christmas lights during Christmas? Because all of those things use more energy than the entire Bitcoin network. It's a mistake, obviously. Those, those statements are all true, but it is a mistake because the real thing that is ridiculous is if you're paying for power, you should be able to say how you use it as all those other things that I just mentioned. That's the case with all of those. But it is infuriating. Like, I also think there's a there's a part of this that Jason you touch on that I'm genuinely curious how how the EPA will handle it off of the heels of the most recent Supreme Court case. I feel like any any of the proponents of Bitcoin, quite frankly and correct me if I'm wrong in saying it like this, do not have the reach and do not have the soundboard that someone like an Elizabeth Warren, unfortunately does and in turn she's able to be heard in this way where senator lummis unfortunately her and senator gillibrand's bill i'm not necessarily saying it's dead but it's now stalled and somehow elizabeth warren is sort of coming up out of nowhere with this new bill to push things forward what what if anything can legislators that are against this bill try to do to inhibit this without just relying on the EPA to somehow grow a spine today or tomorrow. So, so Q, the, the, there's no the big the the Lomas Gillibrand bill is absolutely not dead. It, it probably won't get passed this year. Elizabeth Warren introduced the bill right after Lummis had been at the same hearing, testifying for five minutes and and talking, pleading with other senators to pick up the Lummis Gillibrand bill as a solution to a lot of this. Warren doesn't seem like she has any Republican or Democratic counterparts yet. To her bill so it won't be bipartisan and then and and when elizabeth warren announced her new bill she was looking across the way probably at senator lummis and it was really one of these nanny nanny poo poo i'm putting out my bill not yours kind of thing and i mean it's ridiculous you know it's just a little bit of a game by her on her because she has this big platform and she wants to amplify her voice and and so for for the lummis gillibrand bill i think you can probably start to see movement on that early next year, you know, the end of this year, the, a lot of things are awash, but there's, but this is, this is headway, believe it or not, it can take three to four to five years to actually get a bill passed. So, you know, Lummis Gillibrand bill saying, you know, Bitcoin is, you know, if we can maybe modify it, say Bitcoin is a commodity and just sort of firm that up and maybe even get some better things like the tax breaks for Bitcoiners and other things into the bill. There's that opportunity. And Lummis Gillibrand bill is really well respected. There's, there's, you know, other people are looking to that now. They've they've put a stake in the ground very successfully, and it isn't always necessarily that the bill passed as a, a symbol of its success. Do you mind for 
those of us who don't spend our lives in the cesspool that is DC and really understand the nuances of like how these bills, like what is required for Senator Lummis's bill to actually get put to a vote? Like how many more senators need to come out in support of this bill for it to actually get its day in to have an actual vote on this bill? Quite frankly, there would have to be the 11 of the 20 senators in the Senate banking that would have to vote to put the bill onto the floor of the Senate. There are other ways that it can go too, but this is a long road for this particular bill because it has four different jurisdictions, which means you might have four hearings. So actually there'd be that vote, but like in four different hearings to get the bill to actually be moved onto the Senate floor. So that's a lot of hearings and that's a lot of people voting for it. You also have to have the chairperson of that committee being willing to move the bill forward. That's why people were very paying attention to the stablecoin bill from McHenry and Waters, because they're the chairman and the ranking member. So they could push through the bill relatively quickly. And then it's really up to, you can get a bill to be voted on the floor, but you know you then need the person like a Nancy Pelosi to say, or let's put it on the actual docket to vote on it too, right? So you can see it stalled there. I mean, just look to the last administration with uh, Mitch McConnell, you know, I mean, his desk was, I mean, legendary, right? As far as the amount of bills that he just let sit there that came over from the house. So I think that, I think that you're going to see a long road for this particular bill, but you'll see other elements of the bill that might be taken up, like maybe within one committee where it would be like parts of the ecosystem might be regulated. But I mean, being from the cesspool that you describe and having to wear, you know, raincoats and other things to protect myself at all times, like I wouldn't wait for Congress to like pass the Lummis Gillibrand bill as like the symbol of that success or to have its day. Like, like I said, believe it or not, it's, it's already been successful in that there's conversations happening on the Hill. It's not going to be, it's not going to be something that's, that's dead it's it's not dead it's not alive it's 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 moving at the speed of congress which is very very slow i want to I want to comment on something you said earlier which we see a lot of in the bitcoin space but which is people arguing that politics doesn't matter as it relates to bitcoin and i i never understand that and i and i wanted to to talk about that for a minute because it's okay if individual people are not interested in that aspect of bitcoin but it is incredibly important. People love to say like Bitcoin is inevitable. And I do believe that that is true. At the same time, we are in the middle of a very, very intense battle for our freedom. And Bitcoin is a major part of that. And so I've never understood why people would like shit on this really important part of the battlefield, which is how the laws that are enacted in this country and all over the world affect this asset that we care so much about. Where do you think that comes from, Jason? Where do you think that that that's that argument that people make that like, oh, none of that shit matters, like just focus on other stuff? I think people believe, and I think it goes back to the cypherpunk movement where the idea is that you can, it, it's a matter of creating the society you want on the internet and coding things and encrypting things in a way where the laws won't matter, right? Which is why you've seen, you know, recent attempts through the a bill to break encryption, right? Where the attorney general would have the ability to go in and break encryption and, you know, whatever it might be, kind of have a back door to see like what's happening in people's private messages. 
people have a right to send peer-to-peer -peer messages to each other and, and not have it read by the government, just as people should be able to send Bitcoin to each other and, and not have that be known by the government. Of course, there's the rule of law. And if there's you know criminal activity, that's where that would potentially change. But I mean, I'm not one of those people. I wouldn't probably be wasting my time in DC because it would be considered and probably is by a lot to be a waste of time. But I do agree, though, with the notion that you know, you can create maybe a universe, you know, on the internet that, you know, with coding and people, you know, you do enough coding. And I mean, no one, no, we've already proven the thesis, right? Bitcoin, in a sense, has already won its first battle because no country has been able to take out Bitcoin, right? No country's been able to stop it. They're still grappling with it. They're still trying to grasp what it means. This was all kind of an inevitable scenario. So, I mean, that's where I think people get the confidence maybe that doesn't matter what the government does. Look, it's going to do this. It's going to do that. Now, at some point or another, maybe they can't end Bitcoin. But, you know, I have news for you. If, you know, think about prohibition, right? In the 1920s, people demanded, you know, to drink. So that sort of went away. But and people and it drove it drove everything underground, you know, underground people, you know, people still mining Bitcoin, even if they but they could ban the activity. I mean, look at China. You know, that's that's way off the table. Thanks to the Lummis Gillibrand bill. But I mean, there are things the government could do that could really, let's say, slow the adoption of, of Bitcoin. And that's why I think people should pay attention, at least minimally. I agree. Okay, should we, should we go through some clips? What do we think? Yeah, yeah, I think that would be, that would be grand. Thank you for entertaining our very green political questions. Of course, of course. So I don't know if the first one's queued up, but I just wanted to give you a little bit of aspect to this. So Chris, Chris do you have you, the uh, first one ready come to in go? And, and get us queued up for these. The tape. For these yeah, give, give one sec. So this is, so this is what I call like the, it's like watching your taxpayer dollars be set on fire. So it's a few years ago when you had Maxine Waters and Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. Now here's the story. Mnuchin's had been there for like four hours. So it's pretty much time for him to go. But they're having a fight, and you'll see the argument between her, the chairwoman of the House Financial Services Committee, and the Secretary of the Treasury about whether he could leave the hearing or not and when the hearing was technically over. So it's a four-minute conversation that happens between the two of them. And here's the funny part, just this backstory. He kept on saying he had this meeting to go to. Oh, my God, I have this meeting to get to. I have this meeting to get to. So it turned out, like this, with these foreign officials, it turned out there were people from Bahrain, like, you know, high-ranking officials from Bahrain. But they were sitting outside Mnuchin's office, and they were watching this all unfold on TV. So, I mean, think of the embarrassment to America. And they said, we're in no rush. If we have to wait an hour, we'll wait an hour. But Mnuchin's like, I got to get out of here. I have these people waiting in my office. So with that, let's go to the uh, Waters versus Mnuchin battle. We would like to have a press conference in this room following. No, I, I'm, I'm going to cancel that. I don't have time for that. So I'm uh, not. Well, doing that's what I was going to ask you if you would, uh, instead of having the press conference, continue with those uh, members who have been waiting here for so long. And I think what I thought I originally heard was 5.30 rather than 5.15. So is it possible you could give us another 15 minutes to get to no, these members? I, I have a foreign leader waiting in my office at 5.30. Okay, I agreed to stay longer. It, it will be embarrassing if I keep this person waiting for a long period of time. I wasn't going to have a press conference. I was going to have a short press gaggle. I'm not going to do that. And I've assured you, I'm happy to come back here and answer more of your questions. I respect 
the committee, and we want to have a good working relationship with you. So I, I, I hope you'll understand I'm already going to be late to um, my 530 meeting. I do understand. We're late all the time, unfortunately. We're all pressed for time, and I do get it. However, I think I indicated early on that we would request or require that you come back at least two more times in the month of May. Is that something you're agreeing to? No, Ma Madam Chair, I find this to be, you know, I, I have here every single time Jack Lew and other people came here. There's never been anybody that's been here more than three hours and 15 minutes. I've sat here for over three hours and 15 minutes. I've told you I'll come back. I, I just don't believe we're sitting here negotiating when I come back. We'll follow up with your office. How long would you like me to come back for next time? I've told you I'll accommodate you. I appreciate that, and I appreciate your reminding us of the length of time other secretaries have been here. This is a new way, and it's a new day, okay, well, and it's a new chair, okay, and well, I have the gavel at this point. If you wish to leave, you may. Uh, can you clarify that for me? Yes, clarify is so, this. So if I'm you wish to leave, you may. Okay, so we're, you're, we're dismissed, is that correct? If you wish to leave, you may leave. I, I don't understand what you're saying. You're wasting you your to... time. Don't rem Remember, you have a, a foreign dignitary in your office. I, I would just say that the previous administration, when the Republicans, they did not treat the Secretary of the Treasury this way. So if, if this is the way you want to treat me, then I'll rethink whether I voluntarily come back here to testify, which I've offered to do. Mr. Secretary, I want you to know that no other Secretary has ever told us the day before that they were going to limit their time in the way that you're doing. So if you want to use them as examples, you have acted differently than they have acted. And as I, as I have said, if you wish to leave, you may. If you'd wish to keep me here so that I don't have my important meeting, and continue to grill me, then we can do that. I will cancel my meeting and I will not be back here. I will be very clear if that's the way you'd like to have this relationship. Thank you. The gentleman, the secretary has agreed to stay to hear all of the rest of the members. Okay, Please so just cancel let's your be clear meeting to the press. and I'm respect our time. I, I am Who is next on the list? My foreign meeting. You're, you're instructing me to stay here and I should cancel. No, you just government. made me an offer. No, I didn't make you an you offer. You made me let's an offer that I accepted. I, I did not make well, you an offer. Just let's be clear. Well, you're you, instructing me. You are ordering me to stay here. No, so I'm not ordering you. I'm responding. Okay. I said you may leave anytime you want. And you said, okay, if that's what you want to do, I'll cancel my appointment and I'll stay here. So I'm responding to your request. If that's what you that's want to do. That's not what I want to do. I told you. What would you like to do? What I've told you is I thought it was respectful that you'd let me leave at 515. You are which free is to leave anytime you want. You may okay, go well then, uh, anytime please, you want. Please. Please dismiss everybody. I believe you're supposed to take the gravel and, and bang it. That's Please do not instruct me as to how I'm to conduct this committee. What just happened? So Pete, I wanted to show you that clip first, because as you know, we originally met on Clubhouse. Kind of sounds like a Clubhouse conversation, right? I mean, yes. and this is in Congress with world leaders. This is what I mean about like, when people have personal disagreements with each other, it's where it goes off else. Like, I what mean, the fuck? I mean, and that was, it was a comedy skit. It was like, you said this. No, you. Like no, if I you. picked up the phone and told you, 
you'll not believe what happened in Congress. Like they were, it was like a little school argument. You'd be like, Jason, come on. It could have been that. Bad. The Treasury and the Chairman of the Financial Service Committee of the most powerful country in the world. They didn't have. I mean, a look, like we we only just pay their salary, but sure, sure, behave like that. That was honestly that was what it. If you do not know what a toxic relationship looks like, <laughs> and and or if you watch that, and you're like, that sounds like the conversations I have with my significant other. Let me tell you, you are in a very toxic relationship, my friend. I love yeah. it. I love it. So that's like kind of, again, that first one is to illustrate to the listeners what they probably already knew, which is talk about wasting of time and wasting of our money. And then cue to your point in all seriousness that that kind of conversation devolved and that's on taxpayer our dime. You know, that's, this is government money. So, so the next one, the next one is, this is my tip on what not to do if you're questioned by Congress or if you're ever in a hearing. Because what you're about to see next, P, is this is somebody who was brought to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And it actually just created a sandbox for things like cryptocurrency and fintech. The problem that he has is that he erased part of his resume on LinkedIn to hide part of his past. And a representative holds his feet to the fire. And you're just not going to believe what's said in this next clip. So if you both are ready. Let's do it. Roll the tape. Oh, yeah. So, so. Go There's a crazy, crazy echo. echo. All right. Where should we? Oh, okay. So, Chris, you got to start two hours and 15 minutes in, and then we're all going to have the time of our lives. Don't promise that. I'm going to sing a song for all of you while we wait. I'm going to leave myself unmuted so people can hear my actual like audible reactions to what happens this time. Chris, you almost ready? I, I, the, the anticipation is killing me. The agency issued interpretive letters clarifying that national banks could offer services such as custody for digital assets that they historically offer for traditional assets and that national banks could participate in independent node verification networks to facilitate payments. Why do you believe these issues oh, are okay, clarification? Sorry, what sorry. impact? Pause it, pause it, pause it. My mistake. mistake. You're, you're on the second link, right? Go to one hour and 32 minutes in. My bad. Sorry, I thought I had Roll that. back the tape. Press rewind. And say again, well, like, so who is speaking in this, in this clip again, Jason? Katie Porter. And right. she is a representative. And she's questioning you. Sorry, one hour and 32 minutes? Yes, sir. All right, there we go. Katie sorry. Porter. That clip uh, wasn't two hours long, so I was like, right. <laughs> yeah, that was, it'll be worth it, I promise. Democratic right. Congress lady out of Orange County. Technology itself. Let it, let it just run. run. You could almost regard as neutral. It's how it's used and it's how it's deployed by the people running the companies that makes it used for either good or, or for ill. And I think in particular, one of the things we're seeing is the ability of some of these financial technology I did not engage in advocacy. I did not engage in litigation. My job was as part of a component of that group that advises law students. I did. 
not as neutral. It's how it's, it's used and how it's deployed by the people running the companies that makes it used for either good or, or for ill. And I think in particular, one of the things we're seeing is the ability of these financial technology and, um, solutions to actually... It's about to be the really important question, 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 question alternatives. Basically, the question is, is, is resume and seeking background, disability, be a regulator. That's often about serving communities that are perhaps harder to reach or are excluded from more mainstream financial services products. Okay, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I yield back. The gentleman yields back. The chair now recognizes the gentlelady from California, Ms. Porter, for five minutes. Thank you, sir. Mr. Watkins, five months after you were appointed to your position, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau proposed policies that give the Office of Innovation authority to exempt certain fintech companies from having to comply with laws like the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. And they did this for the purpose of promoting innovation. Specifically, the Bureau revised its no action letter and its product sandbox policies to give fintech policies a safe harbor from liability so that the qualifying companies would be immune from enforcement actions by federal or state authorities. As the head of the Office of Innovation, once these policies go into effect, you are going to wield enormous influence over which anti-discrimination laws companies have to follow. Would you be able to wield that influence in an unbiased capacity? Thank you for that question, Congresswoman. Yes, I would. You mentioned in your testimony that you consulted with a broad spectrum of stakeholders in designing the proposals, the no action proposals and the sandbox proposals that you've spoken about, including meeting with civil rights groups. Can you name a few of those groups, please? I most recently met with Chicanos Por La Casa. The meetings that we have had, the prior meetings that I'm thinking of regarding civil rights groups were part of the larger groups, and I would be glad to get you that information, but would, would need to provide that to you at a later time. Did you meet with the Human Rights Campaign? I don't recall if they were. Did you meet with Equality California? I don't recall if they were at the meeting or not. Did you meet with any LGBTQ rights groups? I would, I would have to look at the meeting participants to be able to answer that question. Discrimination in lending against the LGBTQ borrowers is rampant. One recent study found that surveying 25 years of mortgage data, that gay couples were 73% more likely to be denied a mortgage than heterosexual couples with the same financial worthiness. Mr. Watkins, I studied your, as is my habit, I studied your CV before I came here today. I would like to ask you about this gap in your CV. This is from LinkedIn. What were you doing from 2012 to 2015? Thank you for providing me the opportunity to respond to that allegation. Oh, it's my uh, pleasure. There is no gap on the resume that I submitted to the Bureau that resume that I submitted to No, the I'm not excuse me. I'm not reclaiming my time. I'm not accusing you of any resume impropriety. I'm asking, let me just ask you directly. Sure. Uh, is it true that during that period you worked for the Alliance Defending Freedom? That period that you mentioned was a period when I had left my law firm, when I was disillusioned with the practice Mr. of law. Mr. Watkins, I'm not and, respectfully reclaiming okay. my time. I'm not interested in your life history. I just Absolutely. really want to ask about have you ever worked for yes. the Alliance Defending Freedom. Yes, and I did during that time. Were you senior legal counsel there? I was, and I'd be happy to explain what those duties were. Did you know 
that the Alliance Defending Freedom has been designated a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center? I don't recall if that occurred when I was there or afterwards, but I, I do know that that has happened as I sit here now. In describing the Alliance Defending Freedom, the Southern Poverty Law Center said that the group, quote, quotes the re supports the recriminalization of homosexuality and defends state-sanctioned sterilization of trans people. Mr. Spears, the founder, co-founder and CEO of the Alliance Defending Freedom, has described the homosexual agenda as evil and written that homosexual behavior and pedophilia are often intrinsically linked. Do you agree with those views? Congresswoman, I am not. So basically, he specifically left off the fact that he had per he'd been a member of this group. It was it was a hate group. What was what, what what happened there? Well, Alliance Defending Freedom, you know, I mean, it's been designated a, a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center. And he just he, he didn't take it off in his submission to Congress, but he had taken it down from his LinkedIn profile. And then as as she brought him to bear as to whether he actually worked there, what I'm trying to say is you should be clear about where you've worked. But, you know, it's it's a problem when you are impeached that way as a witness. Right. Because she, you know, was asking questions and he wasn't able to just directly answer. Yeah, I worked there and this is what the company was about, but I don't believe those things. Right. So that to me is sort of a, it's a gotcha moment, but I, I just don't know, at least for me, and this person's active now, like actually in the crypto field, he writes a lot. He's, he's left office. He left the Trump field. He writes a lot with a New York ex New York regulator, but I just don't know how you, I, 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 I would not advise people to have like clean LinkedIn profiles if you're going to be in Congress or have a, you know, accountability in a particular position. So. So you're telling me all the pictures of me, standing on a beer keg on my Facebook are probably going to be held against me when I probably. run for president one day. Probably. But like yes. at a certain point, like in, in all seriousness, mm -hmm. there is a, I feel like generational divide where unfortunately the younger generation did spend far too much time doing things like, I don't know, posting every single thought we Let ever had on social media. Melting your... Sorry about that. What do you watch it there? <laughs> I'm like trying to make sure the next thing was queued up properly. Is it, it going to melt in your mouth, Jason? Yeah. The point of my question is, do you think in the future there will be a point where we actually stop holding it against people for doing things like smoking weed or sharing their religious beliefs or just doing anything at a certain point in their past? Yeah. I mean, it used to be right. If you were one of their earlier Kennedys, you know, have like a, <laughs> all the gin you want, you know, fair with Marilyn Monroe, anything was fair game or, you know, people could like live their lives. Right. Like, I mean, Roosevelt in a wheelchair. Right. Like, I mean, you know, people in the media back then, they never reported the fact that he was in a wheelchair for years. Right. There was, but now it's like, that would be the first, that'd be a meme, you know, immediately. So yeah, it really is. I mean, the question is, and this is the question, right. In general is, can you find a way to like, how do you evaluate whether someone should serve in office? Right. For that matter, how do you, what do you trust? And I think at least for me, the nice thing and what I enjoy about Bitcoin the most is when I get to explore the technology and realize that it's based on math and it's that sort of trustless environment. Right. But yeah, I don't, I don't know. That's, that's like almost beyond my pay grade. 
Q, what you're asking, right? In terms of just in general, it's a societal issue. You know, what things can you or can you not have done and then be able to serve in, in public office? I think sometimes for people like, people like maybe if you don't have the most perfect past in the world, right? I mean, and I think we sort of saw the breakthrough with Clinton, right? That he had almost, but not really smoked, you know, a joint. Like people have lives, people should be able to do what they want. You know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know the best way that we evaluate like who a leader should be, you know? Okay, so what is our next clip? What's going on? Set the scene for us and let's go through it. Well, it doesn't melt in your mouth, but right, right after that, basically we have Gary Gensler who's being questioned at the SEC, which we all know Gary Gensler by now, by a senator who's trying to understand what they thought they were getting with sort of him coming from MIT and understanding this field to much more of a, you okay there, Q? All right. Into more of a sort of like, do we really need like a mother may I type system that we live in, right? I don't think people want to be, have to ask permission to do things. And this is what this particular senator's grilling Gensler about in this case. Kennedy is, Kennedy is recognized. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman, I read your editorial in the Wall Street Journal today about the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act. For what it's worth, I agree with most of it. The, the, the uh, damn good bill, by the way, if I may say so. I want to thank you for I think it helps us do our job both at the SEC and at the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board. I appreciate that. I, I agree with you, obviously. There's a there's a, 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 a three-year implementation period, as you know. Foreign companies, including our friends in China, have three years to comply. The Senate's passed a, a bill reducing that to two years. We're having a little trouble getting the House to take it up. Would you be willing to contribute your considerable efforts to encouraging how the house to take it up senator i've already had some discussions and ex expressed to some of the leadership over there that i support that okay. who, who pays corporate income taxes senator it's the corporation that pays the taxes of course then ultimately the owners of those corporations are the shareholders corporations just a, is not a payor it's a tax collector. Well, I'm not here as an expert on the tax code. I think the yeah, corporation you're an expert literally. On corporations. I think economists are generally in agreement that the, the corporation is not a payer. It's a tax collector. The owners and the customers and the workers that uh, Chairman Brown spoke so eloquently about actually pay the tax, don't they? Well, well, again, I, I'd never want to mince words, but I think that the corporation, of course, is paying, and then the shareholders have less netting. Don't cost. the workers pay it too? I think that it's a cost of the of the corporation. It, like all costs of the corporation, those costs compete with each other. Even yeah, the cost the of the real estate. Do the so workers forth. pay it? I'm just trying to. I don't have much time. Sorry about that. I'm not. I'm. I'm. I'm the workers pay individual income tax, workers pay social security tax and the like. The, the, you, I just want to be sure I understand your testimony, Mr. Chairman. You're, you're saying that the, the workers are not impacted at all by the corporate income tax? Oh, I'm sorry. I, I thought you were asking a different question. All costs in a company compete with each other, whether it's the real estate costs or any are other costs. Are for the sure. workers impacted negatively by corporate income tax? Um, real simple question. No, I understand it, but I think it's best as the head of the SEC to leave you don't want to debates answer. about taxes to Congress. 
I really do think that that's I understand why you don't want to answer it. I get it. Look, I, I don't mean any disrespect to you. I followed your career. You've had a quite a career in public service. You've, you've made a lot of money on Wall Street. I respect that. I honor that. But as to the, to the people and the companies that you regulate as chairman of the SEC, do you consider yourself to be their daddy? No, no. Then why do you act like it? I try to take the oath of office seriously that the SEC is set up to promote investor protection and facilitate capital formation and that which is in the middle. Yeah, but, but why do you impose your personal preferences about cultural issues and social issues on companies? And, their and therefore, their, their customers and their workers, with like, like, like climate change and the Second Amendment. I mean, I'm sure you have, you have personal feelings about abortion. Do you have plans to implement or, or, or impose those values on companies? So I want to thank you for the compliment you gave me, and I've followed your career and have the deepest respect for you, too, sir. I think that I am not doing that. I think what I've, I've been trying to do is say, if investors want information about climate risk, and it looks like tens of trillions of dollars of assets under management of asking, we at the SEC have a role to put something out to notice and comment, do the economic analysis, and really see... Wow. Does it feel more like Clubhouse yet? Or like Twitter spaces? <laughs> Man, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, that's a U.S. senator, sitting U.S. senator asking the chair of the SEC if he thinks that he's her daddy. I mean, if anything, hopefully by the end of this, I've educated all of your listeners that things can get pretty real in I mean, D.C. Let's be real. But almost me. unreal, right? Unreal. And again, I know we're laughing, but like you said, it's, it's a serious thing. And, and this is like where, you know, his point, he, he was really out of line, but his point is sort of how much imposition on a corporation do we want from our government, right? That's the real. So it's an interesting conversation. It just went way off the rails. And plus, I thought you'd enjoy hearing someone asked Gary Gensler if he was his daddy and then why yeah, absolutely I yeah mean, I mean the conversation itself is is a really it. important one and I mean I would say like you know we shouldn't be forcing uh you am know, I the only one that caught the fact that Gary Gensler has a secret homosexual relationship with that sitting U.S. senator <laughs> am I the only one that caught that that is the story here I don't give a shit oh about the fact that government cares about how they tax corporations no the fact that Gary Gensler and his boyfriend work together on a regular basis. Wait, you, you, did I miss a part not, where they were like giving each other better eyes? Like what? To be honest, I laughed so loud when he was like, this is a great bill you wrote. Why, thank you, sir. I really worked hard on it. I was like, what? <laughs> what is going on here? Oh my God. That's my takeaway here. I'm sorry. I've, I tried to be the most serious about this when we started these conversations, Jason, and you have, you got me. You showed me the worst of the worst. So again, we're going through, Jason is educating us on the ridiculous, insane, and frankly, shocking <laughs> types of conversations that happen in, in these types of settings. He's really giving us a deep dive on how petty these conversations can be. For, for a quick recap, and correct me if I'm wrong on these, Jason. So we had just 
toxic gaslighting in conversation number one. In conversation two, we essentially had an attempt to cancel someone for their own beliefs. And now we have Gary Gensler coming out of the closet as a gay man. So I'm excited for what, what the next conversation will entail. That was not the conclusion of the last clip, Q. You have gone even more off the rails than this specific clip. What do we got next? So let me just uh, cue this up. Let's go. We're going to go to Brad Sherman next. And I just okay. got to give you time. I apologize in advance to our audience for what you're about to have to see on the screen. So this is where we get into a little bit of Bitcoin. And we get into Brad Sherman, who is giving us a rundown of how to advertise Bitcoin. Brad Sherman, Sherman is, 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 is the congressman who does not like, like Bitcoin. You, you, can go, you can go ahead and start it. Start it. Yeah. State banks have the ability to export their home state's interest rate to other states. And why was that important as a policy matter? Because again, in the late 70s, the market rate of money was in the high double digits and the state usury cap in some states was in the single digits, meaning that if you lived in that state and you didn't have interest rate exportation, okay, you I'm, literally I'm, I'm couldn't you. borrow Sorry, go to one, one hour, 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 hour 15. My bad. My bad. One hour 15. Hour 15. Thanks for everybody's Thanks for presentation. Listening, listening. There you go. There you go. Look like deposits, perfect, act perfect. like deposits, walk like deposits, talk like deposits, but we don't treat like deposits. And in the other and, sense, though, this is totally and, new. And following and because up of on the tech that, and the data collection. we have a few very small old ILCs out there. But if Amazon exploits this, they're going to be enormous. They don't do anything small. And the question <laughs> would then be, would they be subject to the Financial Stability Oversight Council if they were a systemic of systemic importance to our financial system? Yeah, there are all these giant macro questions, which I believe Professor Gerding outlined quite well. And the issue to me is certainly one of power even behind that, um, Congressman Sherman. The issue is that entities like Amazon and Facebook and Walmart, which is launched the FinTech, as you said, has hired you know people from outfits that don't respect privacy to come in under the cloak of providing access to credit or financial inclusion even, but to do so in a way that fundamentally depends upon mass surveillance and a violation of our constitutional rights consistently. There are other ways to do this in which we respect privacy. There are other ways even for private sector companies to do this, let alone the government itself. And we are not addressing those ways. I'd be really interested to hear what, for instance, former acting Comptroller Brooks has to say about the Fourth Amendment and again, the necessary violation of privacy that is the business model of these companies. I, works. I do want to go on to one other issue. And Professor Gerding, I'm probably going to ask you to respond for the record, but we see that the state of Wyoming is moving toward cryptocurrency and the OCC has granted preliminary approval to the Anchorage Trust Company to become a national trust bank. And Anchorage, of course, claims to be a cryptocurrency asset custodian. I've looked at coin and wondered whether there was a big enough market among terrorists, drug dealers, and it didn't seem to be enough. And then I realized when the IRS uh, commissioner testified for $1 trillion every year of unreported taxes, chiefly from the wealthy, then, and I made up a little advertising sign, may help Anchorage coin. It's not just for terrorists anymore, it's for tax evaders too. That's the market. For Bitcoin, I yield back. So yeah, so, yeah you can, gentlemen, you what the actual fuck? What was? Uh, yeah. Wait, when was that? That was about a year and a half ago. 
um, oh my God. It was during a banking hearing and it was toward the end. So it didn't really make a lot of headlines. It was on Twitter a little bit, but yeah, I mean, you know, look, maybe he's looking for a job in PR, but you know, he regularly beats up on Bitcoin. And I thought that was one of the nastier blows, you know, of, yeah. <laughs> if by nastier blow, you mean made absolutely no sense and was completely untrue. Right. I want to give a quick little piece of commentary that that piece of shit, Brad Sherman is the representative from the Valley. That's the part of LA that he's from. And let me just tell you, the Valley is the fucking worst. So Brad Sherman sucks. This is why Erica Rhodes should have won. She's a Democrat. Also no Lambo for you. Like you're literally the most obnoxious person I've seen today. <laughs> okay. So we've seen these clips today of just these ridiculous conversations. Brad Sherman obviously is a terrible person. Where does this come from? Like, why is he so against Bitcoin? Does he understand that the things that he's saying are factually incorrect? Or I have to assume so. I have to assume he's got his own agenda to push and he's deliberately trying to. Well, I have a very interesting thing to share with you, P. I'm going to front run you, Jason. These are Brad Sherman's top five donors. Democracy Engine. Fidelity, Kaiser Permanente, Blackstone, NASDAQ Inc. Huh. I wonder if he's incentivized to not let Bitcoin succeed based on who donates him money. It's got to be more complicated than that. Jason, is it that simple? So I think that the problem is like, yes. Those are people that are supporting him. So he's inclined to not support Bitcoin. But the problem for Brad Sherman, I think, has been that people realize Bitcoin and these cryptocurrencies and possibly CBDCs are going to be around in the world. It's here. It's here to stay. It's growing. And the train is moving toward the Lummis Gillibrand solution, right, of regulating it, not banning it. But you know, his persistence at ignoring the facts about Bitcoin and not understanding it is a value proposition for people is to me where we've gone off the rails in terms of not recognizing there's a new generation here and that there has been, we, we no longer have come from the 1950s and 60s where we could have made large amounts of money and then started putting in 401ks and enjoy the 80s and everything like that. This is a little different. And so in a way, yes, he's tied to his donors, but it's a little bit like what I think we all feel and I recognize, I think is the case is it's like, you know, when Elvis Presley first went on TV and started gyrating, you know, it was the big deal and everyone, but it was cool and he was the rebel, you know, James Dean rebel without a cause, you know, that's Bitcoin now. You know, and it wasn't mainstream, but now we listen to rock and roll. I mean, that's like nothing what Elvis Presley was doing. Right. But back then it was a really big deal. And I think you're seeing that culturally, socially, economically, it's all boiling up. It's boiling up from the financial crisis. And now you're going to see, I think, over the next year or two, sort of putting on a little bit of a prediction hat here, but like inflation. Right. People realizing, OK, we've we swung from one way all the way to the other. So now, great, we're getting more money on our bank accounts, but we still don't have enough money to go buy groceries. And it's like we can't catch up with the U.S. dollar. It just continues to spin out of control, which, again, is going to leave people like Brad Sherman kind of, you know, as a relic, I think. And I think that's the way that we ultimately win. 
it's important to realize he's not in the mainstream. You know, I'm showing you some this example of someone who's way out there, who just runs his mouth about Bitcoin. I mean, he's not going to stop. But Q, if you're asking me if money makes a difference, if like who gives you money and who's in your side and who's going to put you back in office and who put you in office originally, you're going to defend those people. You know, just like if I got a lot of Bitcoin and I ran for Congress, I'd defend Bitcoin. I mean, I would because I believe in Bitcoin, right? And maybe he believes in these things. What's hard to reconcile is when you hear rhetoric like that is, does he actually really believe the words coming out of his mouth? You know, is he really, does this is the way he believes he needs to treat, you know, a company, you know, by, by sort of creating an ad and just completely exaggerating. When we have chain analysis reports, you know, showing it's like less than 1%, right? The same thing as energy. But that's the problem with the way our political system and lobbying, lobbyists like myself are structured right now that affects things in a way where the real facts never really matter, right? It's who's entrenched, what they're defending, and making sure everyone feels like we're able to still defend what exists. That's why venture capitalists, banks, other you know entrenched players are very nervous, right? About the changes that are coming from this and they're pushing back against that narrative. The best example I can tell you, because I've been in this industry for a while, was back in 2017, when I remember the state of Washington said that all of a sudden pot, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't use Bitcoin to buy pot. It was this big deal. And, and it's like, you had to use like cash and everyone was like, well, why, why can't we use it? Cause Bitcoin's anonymous and it'll, you know, even though, cause they had legalized marijuana, which I thought was just so funny. Like we've legalized marijuana, but like, oh my God, you can't use Bitcoin to buy it. What it turned out was that it was the armored car services that bring cash around to all the marijuana dispensaries were nervous that they'd lose their business if everyone switched from cash to Bitcoin. So that's that's just part of politics in America. I'm going to piggyback off of that story. That's literally what has happened to the entire hemp industry when essentially the established paper industry did not want to pass through a lot of marijuana and pro-hemp legislation out of fear that manufacturing of hemp paper, literal paper that you write on, not the papers that I used to roll my joints with, that would put them out of business. Anyways, I digress. So I'm now I'm just getting to a point of anger. I'm so curious. I mean, that is so fucked up that basically, it's a, it's a, that's such a great little microcosm of an example, right? In Washington, weed was legal. There was this sort of essentially nonsensical legislation that was passed that said that you couldn't buy weed with Bitcoin. And it was just a specific group of people, the armored trucks that transport cash, who would lobbied effectively and gotten that specific thing banned because they didn't want it to harm their business. So here's my question for you. What percentage of legislation is, and actually I use the term legislation very loosely. Is it, should I be saying legislation or regulation or just both? I think legislation. Okay. If I, if I know where you're going with this. Yeah. What percentage of legislation would you say is based in just lobbying for very, very specific groups rather than like what is good or what people actually care about, what the people that are lobbying for those things, the people behind them actually care about. What, what is driven by, what percentage is driven by profit motive and doesn't really make sense versus like people actually believing that this is a good thing, even if it's mis, even if they're misinformed. I think people, I, first of all, I think it's probably both, right? Because the regulators can really affect it as well. But I think at the end of the day, it's hard unless it's like right there in front of you, you know, and it's something that you have to figure out how to do. Like, 
sometimes bills can be passed. Like percentage of bills is very, very low, right? When you're saying like, if you're going toward like what gets passed from the ideas, Pete, just to clarify, is that where you're? Yeah. So oh, very, no, very I'm just low. saying like for the le for legislation, again, this is obviously an impossible question to answer. So <laughs> just in your in your your perspective overall, what percentage of legislation that is passed is is as fucked up as the example that we just discussed, where it's like there's such a niche thing. They're they're arguing for a specific thing based purely on their own profit motive. And I guess where anybody who understands what's actually going on is like, come on, this is ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's the idea, right? Like, who is the guy, Virgil Griffith, you know, who's was went to North Korea, taught them about blockchain and crypto. And he had had his like WikiLeaks concept, but it was like to identify when corporations would make up stories about the Exxon mobile oil crisis. But like he would identify it was the company trying to put out the story, you know, versus real people. So, yeah, no, I mean, look, I think we need a lot more common sense in the way we we run our government. Got it. All right. So we have one more clip, I think, right? We have one more clip that we found and it was my fault. We couldn't, it is, we could maybe run a minute or two of it. I think you'd probably get the point after one minute. It's a, uh, let's try it. Let's do, let's more. do one minute of the Elizabeth. One minute clip. and then go back. Cause I know we're short. This is hopefully is the right one. Time. Thank you very much, Dr. Duffy. Appreciate your being here today. So let's start our questions. I recognize myself to get started here for five minutes. As our witnesses have described, digital currencies offer a lot of potential advantages over cash in your wallet or even the electronic balance on your debit card. You don't have to worry about carrying cash around and losing it or having it stolen. If you want to send money to somebody else, digital currency can be easier and faster. But in order for those advantages to be realized, the digital version of cash needs to be secure, stable, and accepted everywhere. Your local grocery store is only going to accept digital currency if it knows that the digital version of the $100 that you use to pay for your groceries is actually worth $100. Your babysitter is only going to keep showing up if she knows that the digital $20 you sent her is really worth $20. So let's talk about using cryptocurrency like Bitcoin to pay for groceries or to pay for a babysitter. Dr. Narula, is the value of cryptocurrency like Bitcoin generally stable and reliable? Thanks for the question, Senator Warren. No, it is not. So this one is interesting because I feel like what you just saw Senator Warren do was, and this is my prediction, P, is I think that you're going to see Bitcoin and the Lightning Network start to be used like cash in the future. But she just made the argument why Bitcoin is the right in that circumstance, right? To make sure you have that finality of payment in a grocery store. There's lots of people on her side of the aisle, particularly her progressive camp, that want it to be anonymous. They don't want people of color. They don't want minorities to have to identify themselves to the government. They want them to use a digital form of cash. And so what I find interesting is as you hearing, because she was talking obviously about CBDC and then going for the easy layup of, well, you know, Bitcoin fluctuates, so you can't use it. It's like, but you just made a huge argument toward why Bitcoin is actually the perfect use case for those kinds of things like grocery stores. And of course, I don't have to educate your audience and both of you on like Lightning Network and in terms of, you know, making speedier payments. But I saw this interesting because I've been watching that a lot and I would continue to watch for 
at some point they're going to come around. They may never admit it, but they're like, we really need something like lightning to do cash in America digitally. Yeah. How far do you think, how far away from trying to actually implement CBDCs are we in this country, like Fed bucks or something? 23 years. <laughs> how many months such and specific, days? Such a specific answer. I love the it. Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve Task Force to do faster payments started in 2016. And the Faster Payments Task Force wrapped up in 2020. We still don't have 24-7 faster payments. So they're still working on, there's now a Faster Payments Council into 2021, and we're now up to 2024. So that's just to make payments faster with current money. I, I will believe it when I see it, and I'll make like a Bitcoin bet that I'll probably regret and lose money over. But yeah, maybe, maybe 2043. That's about it. And I'm joking a bit, but I'm saying just don't. Don't bank anything not, on it. We're not waiting bated breath for this to happen. Because think about it. If they launch it, think of the risk, the tail risks. What if they launch the first CBDC and it's like health.gov and it crashes? People have money and then suddenly it's gone. Like, I don't know. I think we're a long way off. So, but hopefully they'll see it my way and come around to Bitcoin and mass adoption will occur as it should. Got it. Well, Jason, thank you so much for uh, for joining us today. I really enjoyed going through these with you. Thanks for everyone for sticking through it. How can people find you? Where can they follow you? They can find me at Regulatory Jason on Twitter. And I actually, surprise P, will be in Nashville later tonight. And uh, so if you contact Bitcoin Policy Institute, you can reach me through there as well. For now, use Jason at valuetechnology.org as an email. But best is at Regulatory Jason on Twitter. And thank you all for having me. I had a lot of fun. Appreciate it. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. We're going back to Miami for Bitcoin 2023. Lock in your tickets before prices go up. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your tickets today. The censorship-resistant issue of the Bitcoin Magazine print edition is available now. Grab your copy at your local Barnes & Noble store or head on over to the Bitcoin Magazine store and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your order today. 